0: Good morning, and welcome to this local production of Divine Mercy Radio. I am Bill Gent, and our program is called Treasures of Faith, where we showcase the truth, beauty, and goodness of our Catholic faith as it's lived and experienced in our local community. This is Apologetics Friday, and it's my privilege to introduce Father Jeremiah Payne, the pastor of St. Joseph's Catholic Parish in Palm Bay, Florida. And uh, Father Jeremiah has a very interesting story. Of course, on uh, most of our Fridays, we'll have what we call Apologetics Day, and Father Jeremiah will typically be joined by Father Emmanuel, who happens to be out of town. But Father Jeremiah, as you were growing up, you really had no real experience of faith or attendance at any church, but you were influenced by a young woman who shared the gospel with you. Father Jeremiah, I have to ask you: How did you ever begin going to church in the first place? Uh, and
1: Lynn told me as I went back home to Florida that you got to find a Bible-based church. Oh yeah, she said. And she said you got to avoid the Catholics, you got to avoid the Mormons, you got to avoid the Seventh Day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, but you got to find a Bible-based church and. So I got home and I I started looking around, and my parents really didn't want me going to church. So I'll I'll tell you how I got my parents to let me go to church. You ready for this one, Bill? (laughs) This is a fun story. So my parents kept saying no, which is kind of odd. You know, if you're a parent of a teenager, and the teenager wants to go to church, let the kid go to church, right? Uh, so one day I got home from school and I saw an advertisement on TV for the book of Mormon. <laughs> and if you called, they'd bring you a free Bible and a book of Mormon. Now I had no intentions of joining the Mormon church, but I knew it would really irritate my dad. <laughs> so I called Typical him.
0: teenager. I know. I know.
1: So I called and ordered the book of Mormon. Sure enough, seven days later, uh, there were two Mormon missionaries at our door and my dad was livid. And so it kicked him out of the yard and everything like that. So I told him, I said, Hey dad, uh, Either, you know, you let me go to the church of my choice or I'm going to become a Mormon and they're going to be here every week. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I finally found uh, a church home. I visited several Baptists, Methodists and other things like that. And I finally found just this really lovely, small, welcoming church called Bellevue First Assembly of God. And uh, I didn't know anything about denominations, but the Assemblies of God is uh, the first and oldest Pentecostal uh, church in the United States of America and uh, split off uh, with the church of God and, and the assemblies of God. Uh, it was founded in 1914 out of Azusa street in Los Angeles. And I, I started going to church on Sundays, Wednesday nights, Sunday nights, youth group, sang in the choir and everything. It just it began falling deeper and deeper in love with mm-hmm. the Lord, learning mm-hmm. scripture. And, you know, my pastor asked one day, you know, if I'd ever, if I'd ever thought about being a preacher and, uh, and I said I hadn't. And he said, Well, why don't you give it a shot? And he gave me a time to preach, and it went really well. And from that point on, I started wondering, You know, well, is, is God calling me to the ministry? Mm. And over the course of those years, you know, I felt that call more and more uh, mm. in my life. And I started doing teen evangelism, and uh, I also started doing preaching contests. Uh, they, have the, uh, they have the Youth Fine Arts Festival, they call it in the Assemblies of God. And they have all these different ministry things, and kids compete. You know, whether it's yep. Bible memorization, oh, whether it's yeah. preaching, and so sword I, drills. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I ended up going to the nationals, uh, winning that competition, and preaching before all of the um, all of the uh, uh, what do they call the presbyters? So it was really exciting, and it, that led me all the way up to uh, my senior year, and in my senior year. Uh, I, I was getting ready to go to Southeastern College of the Assemblies of God, mm. which is, I guess, as close as they have to a seminary, and over in Lakeland, Florida, which I did attend for a year. And um, I wanted to take a semester off uh, of evangelizing so I could be home, finish up high school work, all that stuff. And my pastor asked me if I would teach a, an adult education class on the early church. Now, what he meant by mm. the early church was the book of Acts. That's right. But I've always been an intellectual sort of guy, and that's sort of my uh, forte. And I was disturbed at um, the thought that I was going to teach this class on the book of Acts and I was going to propose the Assemblies of God doctrines, but I could look down the street and see tons of other churches and mm-hmm. steeples, as is the case in the South, uh, all having different ideas of what the mm-hmm. book of Acts were mm-hmm. and uh, why. Uh, they all believed differently mm. about the book of Acts. We couldn't all be right. True. We couldn't all be right. And so that led me on a journey. And so I'll stop there f- for just a second and say that uh, there are really four things, that kind of four rivers that kind of converged uh, to bring me into the Catholic Church. And those four rivers would be a couple minor things and a couple major things. So uh, the minor things— in my, in my high school AP English class, uh, we had a unit on medieval literature dedicated to St. Thomas Beckett of Canterbury. Mm. Canterbury had been, next to Rome, the biggest pilgrimage site in Europe uh, in the middle of the medieval period. And I remember hearing Beckett's last words, For the sake of Jesus and for the protection of his church, I gladly give my life.
0: Mm. And I thought, Which church?
1: No. Well, I thought Catholics, I knew he was Catholic because he was a saint. I was like, right. but Catholics were the whore of Babylon. Right. And I thought, there's a, there's a Catholic calling on the name of Jesus? What is that? A Catholic calling on the Can't name of Jesus? Be. Can't be. So that really sort of piqued my curiosity. Eventually, Thomas Beckett would become my patron saint when I was confirmed. Uh, the second minor thing was a friend of mine, also Pentecostal, but with the Church of God, had gone off to Bible college in Southern Alabama, uh, got sort of uh, distraught with his church, became a Calvinist, uh, and started going to this little Reformed Episcopal church. So they had Episcopal liturgies, uh, but they had Calvinist theology. Mm. And so uh, what had happened, he came home. He was a year ahead of me, so he came home from college, wanted me to go to a midnight mass at the local Anglican church, not Episcopal, but a right. breakaway Anglican church, Saint yep. George's Anglican. And I thought, what the heck? You know, they're just Catholic lights. Sure. So sure. we make some more converts because Catholics were fairly easy to pick off. And um, so I went, and I remember sitting there. And I know Scott Hahn says this too of his own experience. They began with the prayers at the foot of the altar. The incense started swinging. The chant started, and I was absolutely mesmerized. Mm-hmm. I had never been a part of a liturgical mm. experience at all, mm-hmm. but it was like all of a sudden, the book of Revelation, those mm-hmm. beautiful chapters, like chapters mm. five through seven about yeah. the worship of the Lamb, yes. the heavenly worship of the Lamb, mm-hmm. it was like right here, yes. right here. And there was something of it that captured my heart. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, all the way until my conversion, there was something about Sunday worship at the Assemblies of God uh, that was a little bit hollower, mm. a little bit. Yeah. less like worship. Right. Or something missing. Something missing, yeah. Says, yeah. Beautiful people with beautiful faith, but yes. something right. essential missing. So those were the two minor things. The two major things were uh uh I had my physics teacher in my senior year of high school uh was also and at the same time a minister with the Church of Christ. And he started challenging me uh because he knew I was a fellow Christian, a fellow believer he started challenging me on one of their tenets mm-hmm. um, because they believe in baptismal regeneration. Right, we believe that you were saved through the sinner's prayer. You were mm-hmm. born again by surrendering your heart to Jesus in the sinner's prayer. But he could be, he began to show me in the New Testament that's not what the New Testament says. Mm-hmm. So I remember the day he pointed out to me that text from First Peter three. three. We have this like form of baptism, which does now save us, Mm -hmm. not simply the washing away of the filth of the flesh, but the cleansing of the conscience before God in Christ Jesus risen from the dead. Uh, He showed me where Peter, you know, after preaching that magnificent sermon on the day of Pentecost, they ask him, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus for what? Not as a sign, not as a representation of discipleship, but for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, And on and on it went. Uh, He showed me the passages about the laver or the washing bath of regeneration. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we became a new man by the washing of the water and the word. Uh, And I began to believe in baptismal regeneration because that's what the Bible said. Mm -hmm. That was a big one. It was a big one. If you
0: think about it, you know, I can remember in my days uh, as an evangelical, I remember visiting an individual who I discovered within the first few minutes was a minister in the church of Christ. And I'm coming from a dispensational, and I know you understand yeah. dispensational theology. And so he started sharing these things from Acts and First Peter. And of course, my training was, well, that doesn't apply to me. Yeah. You know? And there are so many different divisions, Father. I want to remind our listeners, you're listening to Treasures of Faith. Uh, this is uh, a local production of Divine Mercy Radio. I'm Bill Gent, and I'm joined in the studio by Father Jeremiah Payne, who's the pastor of St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Palm Bay. And Father Jeremiah is recounting his faith journey uh, through not only his experience as a Protestant, but of course, eventually, as he sits here today, becoming a Catholic priest. These experiences may seem Uh, rather odd to some of our listeners, Father Jeremiah, but uh, it's unfortunate that so many Catholics are misinformed many times about how people approach them with these different beliefs, and we've been talking about the variety of beliefs, but you're really pointing out some of the major things that really got your attention. First of all, Scripture, obviously, Mm -hmm. and then uh, from there, uh, the experience that followed.
1: Yeah, scripture and liturgy, my, even though it wasn't a Catholic
0: liturgy, it was very
1: close, and uh, it captured my attention and uh, learning about baptism, and that began to uh, undermine my Protestant presuppositions from the Assemblies of God. Uh, I began to think, well, if they were wrong about baptism, and if you take the New Testament seriously, they are very wrong about baptism, then what else did, are, are they missing the mark on? Uh-huh. And so that comes into the fourth, but the largest, uh, the largest piece of the conversion story, is that I was teaching this class on the Book of Acts, and I knew from my academic studies, you know, from the study of of, of the great books like like uh, you know the Odyssey, the Iliad mm. by Homer, uh, the Aeneid, um, that oral transmission in the ancient world was not like our parlor games. Uh, most people could not read and write, and so histories, genealogies. Uh, all of these sorts of things were memorized by court scribes and recited and also entertainment things like the Iliad, the Odyssey, the great plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we have textual references throughout the oral history uh, that when we finally get a textual rendition of the whole thing, we can look back over a period of 400 years, look at court records, what scribes write down during performances and a nearly identical transmission of these memorized things through the generations, because that's how they preserve knowledge. So this this is matter-of-fact in the ancient world. And so I began to think that if we all disagree about what the life of the book of Acts is, yet we're all claiming to live that life, the first generation of Christians, after the apostles and disciples, just couldn't and wouldn't go far from what they had taught, especially as Paul constantly reminds them, hold on to that which I have taught you both in writing and in speaking, and, uh, you know, hold on to the faith. You know, these things are said, you know, if anybody comes to you preaching a doctrine that I have not preached, you know, uh, he's not of God, or Mm as St. John says, he's part of the Antichrist, you know, all of these sorts of things. So I decided that these people must have written epistles and letters and things like that. I didn't know for sure, but... Right, the apostles did, and presumably people after the apostles did. So through a bunch of research, I found out that my local library had a 33-volume set Mm. of the early church fathers. And I worked my way through all 33 volumes. And so this is reading from the sub-apostolic era, so people who were disciples of the apostles, Mm -hmm. like Polycarp, uh, like Clement uh, of Rome, all the way through 600 A.D., so this covers a point, and, and I think we might address this later uh, in more detail. Uh, many of us who were fundamentalists had this conception that true Christianity was suppressed underground with the advent of Constantine's legalization of Christianity. That Constantine created the Catholic Church as a, as a semi-idolatrous a way of keeping pagan rituals with the semblance of Christianity, and that flourished. But true Christianity didn't emerge again until the Protestant Reformation, mm-hmm. as though Martin Luther could pull this out of his hat again. Right. So it was important for me to read all of these testimonies and teachings, sermons, doctrines, from a time period that spanned from the New Testament through that critical year of 312, all the way through uh, the full implementation of the, of the Byzantine Empire. And what I found initially terrified me yeah because the only churches that looked like the New Testament Church and as it had been constantly promulgated through those 600 years was the Catholic Church and
0: the Orthodox Churches of the East so you had to be really I mean and and this is something I experienced also when you begin to be confronted by the actual facts of history as well as how that seems to line up with the scripture and how the scripture was preserved, and how oral tradition preceded the New Testament, once you come to that conclusion uh, you 're really confronted with oh, now what do I do yeah exactly, and that 's what happened to me for
1: certain yeah exactly, and you and you start asking questions you know so like one of the questions I began to answer was was just to began to ask rather was just to a point that you made. So, you know, I had grown up believing, you know, sola scriptura, right? Scripture alone mm-hmm. is the sole authority of faith and morals. But I began to beg that question. Well, who has the authority to def- define what scripture is and what it is not? Because I read tons of letters that were written at the same time as scriptures that, that, that were completely in harmony with the scriptures, nothing errant, uh, nothing unbiblical about them, mm-hmm. so why, for example, is first, second, and third John included in the New Testament, and first Peter or, or rather first Clement is right. not right, so somebody had to have the authority, and since we know that the, um, that the compilation of the new Testament we don 't have a full compilation of it well into uh, the late one hundreds, early 200s, and maybe that 's another topic for another day, the formation of the New Testament canon right. So somebody who wasn't an apostle, wasn't a first-generation Christian, had the authority to say, this is Scripture, this is not. And so it, I began to think that authority perhaps doesn't solely reside in the Bible, but resides in the living body. Mm. And you begin to see, you know, as, as you study and you read, you, you begin to see, you know, that Jesus gave authority to the twelve. And that these 12 have the authority to bind and loose and to authority, authoritatively teach. Um, and these 12, of course, ordain uh, others, at, bring into order others after them. So we go from the apostoloi in Greek, the apostles, uh, those who are sent, uh, to the episkopoi, uh, or episkopos is singular. Those who have oversight, literally means overseer, but they have episcope. They're given the gift of authority and oversight the same gifts that the Lord gave the apostles. Uh, And so you see that authority resides in the body and that those that the Lord chooses uh, Mm. to govern that body. Uh, And that opens up a whole new world. And so finally, you know, I I hem hauled about it. I studied and studied and studied. And it was finally down for me to, uh, you know, I knew I was going to convert. I couldn't stay Pentecostal Mm. uh, because that was not, the Bible that was not the New Testament. Church. They were lovely people with a beautiful faith.
0: Father, did you have a, a priest or a, a deacon or some very committed Catholic person that you were talking to? Yes, as a matter of fact, along the way.
1: Yep, it just I'd say by chance, but there's no chance with God. No. Uh, it just as this began in me in my senior year, a buddy of mine, also Pentecostal, um, had a woman dear to his life. Uh, he called her. Uh, like his aunt, uh, been close to his family who was diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, and he asked me one time, they were going to this, uh, Catholic, um, healing service with a sister Brige McKenna. And he asked if I would come along as a faith filled person, uh, with him to pray uh, for this woman named Bobby Taylor. And I went and I met her and we stayed in loose contact throughout that time uh, because I was praying for her, wanted to check up on her. Mm -hmm. Uh, She saw, unbeknownst to me at the time, some leanings towards Mm -hmm. the faith. And so Mm -hmm. she gently uh, instigated. Mm -hmm. uh, And over the summer, she began inviting more and more. And finally, towards the end of that summer, going into the fall, uh, she really started to call and challenge me. Mm -hmm. You know, if this is what you believe, uh, if this is what you can come to intellectually see, why aren't you following it? Mm. You know, uh, and so uh, eventually I did. I made the decision. And when I was confirmed in 1998, she was my confirmation sponsor. Uh, I don't have Uh, a godparent by baptism. So I call her my surrogate godmother. (laughs) So, you know, her; you've met her. I know.
0: Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Wonderful woman.
1: Without Bobby, I might be without her gentle guidance. Mm. uh, I might still be out there in the wishy-washy world of what to do about it. (laughs) So You might
0: be on TV yeah. with one of those TV evangelists. Exactly.
1: And so, friends listening out there, it's a, it's a, good, it's a good point to remember. Uh, your word of encouragement can transform a life. Yes. I'm sitting here today as a priest uh, because of a quiet woman who saw a budding faith and gently persuaded me over mm. the course of time with patience mm-hmm. to follow it.
0: I'm not sure our listeners really know what kind of impact they can have, to your point. Some people think, well, you know, I I can't really speak like Father Jeremiah about the faith. Uh, But they can pray, and they can be an encouragement to others, or they can very gently lead them to maybe to Mass or some event at the parish or whatever the case may be. Just to live an authentic Catholic life has an impact like we sometimes completely underestimate the power of. Exactly. That's
1: exactly right. and. And it doesn't have to do with intellectual aptitude. You know, it has to do with uh, it has to do with living an authentic life, and allowing that authentic life in Christ to shine. You know, our parish is undergoing a, a, a new visioning process, and we chose uh, we chose the word "shine" as sort of our motto, based on C.S. Lewis's quote: uh, "Don't shine so that others can see you; mm-hmm. shine so that through you others can see Him." Mm-hmm. Um, and I th- that's just so important. Yes. And wh- whether it's Saint Teresa's little way. Or whether it's what Teresa of Calcutta said, St. Teresa, you know, do little things with great love. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those things transform, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. Um, intellectually, you know, Bobby would admit, you know, what I know about the faith uh, far surpasses what she knows in terms of data Mm -hmm. about the faith.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: But I would admit her faith is far stronger, far deeper than mine. Mm -hmm. And it's her faith that challenges me. Uh, to be the man of God that God is calling me to be.
0: Well, Father, how did you get from being confirmed and being received into full communion in the Catholic Church? How did you get to really entertain the idea of becoming a Catholic priest? Well, you know, the thought of ministry
1: was uh, in my life from being a Pentecostal, and I always knew in my life that I wanted to help people. It went back to uh, when my grandma died. Uh, My grandma passed away. She was was the dearest person to me in my life for lots Mm -hmm. of reasons. Uh, But when she passed away, uh, there wasn't a lot of attention given to a grieving young boy Mm. uh, to understand death, to understand Mm. its meanings, how to deal with it. And I remember uh, my grandma's minister. uh, She was a a lovely woman by the name of uh, Pastor Naomi Babcock, one of the first female Methodist ministers at Mm. the time in our area Mm -hmm. in western New York. And I remember that day, uh, in spite of everything else that needed to be done, she sat with me for hours Mm. Uh, just trying to help me understand death. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't understand it at the time, but she used the butterfly image to tell me the story of the resurrection. And, and uh, I didn't get it, but it didn't matter that I didn't get it. It was the fact that, that she took, this adult,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, took time for a boy she didn't know right, and just sat with him. And I, I knew from that point, I didn't know that it had anything to do with religion, but I knew for that, from that point on, I knew mm-hmm. I wanted to spend my life doing for other people what Pastor Naomi had mm-hmm. done for me on that day.
0: God was preparing you.
1: He even was, back yeah. then. Yeah, and so, you know, that naturally turned into ministry when I became a Pentecostal. Uh, and then when I became a Catholic, you know, the thought was there. I suppressed the thought for a while because uh, one of the things that comes along with Catholic ministry and the priesthood that doesn't come along with Protestant ministry is celibacy. Mm. And I always had a desire in my heart to be a husband and a father mm-hmm. and, and a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so th- that for a while was a sticking point to my discernment. Uh, but eventually... I remember seeing, uh, at the time, a book uh, at at the University of Notre Dame. I had visited Hames Bookstore, and uh, I never read the book, believe it or not, but it was uh, by Andrew Apostoli, Mm. and I can still see the cover. It's a TAM book, and the text of the book title is sort of in this rainbow font, and it says, When God Asks for an Undivided Heart.
0: Mm.
1: Never Mm. read it, but just that title, it stopped me, and Mm. and I began asking myself the question, is God asking me for an undivided heart?
0: I mean, Father. Just so our listeners are reminded, uh, no one forces priests to be celibate, right? This is a right. this is a point of discernment. So I right. I sometimes hear this from people. Well, you make the priests be celibate, and that's not the case at all.
1: No, no. In the Latin Rite, since the late Middle Ages. Uh, Priests, secular priests, uh, as well as religious priests, uh, secular priests are chosen from men already called to celibacy. So celibacy is a precondition for being chosen for priestly ministry. And it's
0: a gift Mm -hmm. in many
1: respects. Yeah, it's a charism. It's it's an evangelical uh, charism or evangelical council, as we call it, Uh, a way of living that makes manifest uh, some of the deeper identities of Jesus and what he calls us to. So the three evangelical counsels are poverty, chastity, and obedience. Uh, the Lord was obedient to his Father. Uh, the Lord was poor. Uh, and, of course, the Lord uh, was the lover of every human soul, right? We call him in our prayers the lover of the soul.
0: Sure, sure. And, you know, sometimes our Catholic people get very confused. And, uh, you know, next week, just to let our listeners know, we're going to have a deacon, Deacon Barry Schlesman here, who's going to talk about the diaconate and try to clear up some of the confusion that some people have regarding the role of the deacon and how it relates to the priesthood. But anyway, Father, I know that you spent some time, uh, you know, not only, well, you went through the seminary, but after uh, spending some time in a parish after you were ordained, you also returned to the seminary and you were a professor there. Yeah, that's exactly right. So two years into priestly ministry at St. Margaret Mary over in
1: Winter Park, and I'm sure some of my old parishioners will be listening to this as a podcast, so shout out to you. Bishop Wenski at the time, who was our ordinary, uh, sent me over to Rome to study sacramental theology at the Pontifical uh, University of St. Thomas Aquinas uh, in in Rome. And so uh, I went and did that, and then I returned, and I was An assistant professor of sacramental theology at St. Vincent de Paul Regional Seminary in Point Beach. Uh, And there I taught uh, mostly sacramental theology, but some uh, auxiliary courses from there uh, for three years before being recalled back to priestly ministry in the diocese.
0: Well, we're joined by Father Jeremiah Payne here in the studio. This is Divine Mercy Radio, and you're listening to Treasures of Faith. We're going to take a break here momentarily. I want to remind our listeners of our wonderful sponsors, Margarita Pecoraro, who's a realtor with Century 21 Ocean, Dave Mastro, Aaron Heating, Indian River Networks, and, of course, Open Mike's Coffee and Wine Bar. So these are some wonderful sponsors. And if, if you would like to help sponsor this local production of Divine Mercy Radio, you can call 321 757 7717 and ask for Georgette. Uh, on the other side of the break, Father Jeremiah, uh, some folks have submitted some questions. This is uh, going to be called Apologetics Friday. And so we got a couple of questions we'd like you to reflect on. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Treasures of Faith. I am Bill Gent and I'm joined in the studio by Father Jeremiah Payne. And we're so thankful to have Father Jeremiah with us today on Apologetics Friday. Father's been kind of sharing with us his faith journey, and we concluded with how he uh, did serve as a professor at our regional seminary in Boynton Beach, St. Vincent de Paul. As a matter of fact, we had a An interview yesterday with um, Monsignor Toops and a couple of the uh, transitional deacons that will be uh, ordained in this coming May. So, Father Jeremiah, uh, that had to be a great experience having an opportunity to form some of these men who will eventually be serving in the parishes uh, all over the state of Florida.
1: It really was a great opportunity. I, I love teaching. You know, it's, it's one of my, uh, we call them avocations, so the little vocations within your big vocation. Uh, I've always loved teaching, and I enjoyed uh, teaching theology down there with the seminarians. Uh, but the greatest honor is being able to work with them and help mold them. And, and, uh, and I love now, like Tuesday, I was uh, over in Orlando for Focus 11, which is a vocations program for sixth graders and 11th graders. And a couple of my former students are now priests, and they were there sharing their story and I'm seeing the good work that they're doing and, uh, being on fire for the faith. And and it's just like, you know, I had a part in that. Right. And you know, when they come back or, or they seek you out for answers to questions, they still don't have, uh, it's, it's really awesome. Um, and I'm so proud
0: of them. You know, father, we call this program treasures of faith. And, and one of the goals that I have through this program is inspiring people Not only, obviously, uh, people to consider a religious vocation, but even for those who are just the common folk, the folks in the pews, that they've all been gifted in some way. And if they would listen to the Spirit and allow the Spirit to energize their gift, that they can assist the priests and the religious to build up the kingdom so that the gospel of Christ can go around the world as we have been commanded.
1: That's exactly right. And and God pours his gifts and his graces into each one of us. Uh, And insofar as we're in a state of grace, uh, those gifts and those graces are active in our lives. And we just have to discern what they are and put them into place. There's a beautiful image from uh, the late patristic period. Uh, by a writer by the name of Pseudo Dionysius, and he's the guy actually that coined the term in Greek uh, hierarchy. Mm-hmm. That, you know, we use that so frequently and in mm-hmm. so many contexts. But in his original conception of this, he he was he was conceiving the body of Christ as as this uh, the Greek word is perichoresis, which means literally a dancing through. Mm-hmm. So that so that the faithful are gifted in these various ways. Uh, And they're dancing through each other. It's a very lovely image in Greek. Mm. Uh, They're dancing through each other to create this beautiful whole that manifests the kingdom of God. And and no order is more important or less important than the other. So uh, whether priest, bishop, widow, catechumen, uh, whatever it is, we're all dancing through each other in this choreographed uh, by God's Holy Spirit uh, dance uh, that beautifully makes manifest in uh, the kingdom of God where we are now. And so it's being attentive to what those gifts are. And to be attentive, we have to be prayerful. Uh, And to be prayerful in a truly authentic way, we have to be rooted in the sacramental life of the church. And if we are, we begin to see those gifts unfold in ourselves. And then if we have the courage, uh, we get into that dance, as Pseudo Dionysius would say.
0: You know, Father, you're well known as being an excellent homilist. And I know sometimes people talk about, well, you know, the homilies aren't very good. And some of the confusion is about whether a homily is supposed to be instructional or is it simply to be a matter of challenging people regarding their faith? And, you know, having been a professor at the seminary, how are the uh, priests trained as far as how they are to uh, really look at the whole idea of, of homiletics? Right.
1: So, you know, homiletics as a modern discipline is really something that develops after the Second Vatican Council again. So, you know, there's a difference, for example, between a sermon and a homily, right? So, uh, prior to the Second Vatican Council, you would attend Mass, and Mass would literally go on pause uh, after the reading of the Gospel. And you could tell because the priest would take his maniple off, which was, a, which was yeah, the vestment on his wrist. Yeah. And so, when he took his maniple off, Mass was paused, and then he would give an instructional talk in Latin, sermo, uh, which means a talk or a teaching. Uh, and then he put the Maniple back on, and Mass would continue again. So the Mass of the Catechumens had ended, and the and the, uh, uh, the Mass of the Faithful had begun. Uh, after the Second Vatican Council, which in many ways got in touch again with the sources of the early Church and, and the way that the early Church uh, saw things, uh, they decided to sort of shift from the Sermon model, which is strictly instructional, uh, to the Homiletic model, which is which in one way is taking the scriptures and helping the scriptures to become the lens through which the Greek word is hermeneutic, hermeneia the lens through which people see their lives and the lens through which people act. Mm -hmm. And so while there is some instruction involved, um, it's not principally catechetical in that sense. Uh, It is how I've read this gospel. I've been touched by this gospel. I have heard in the living liturgy of Holy church, the voice of Christ speaking to me or the voice of the apostles or the prophets speaking to me today. Mm -hmm. Right. How am I different when I walk out of this church today? Why is my life changed for having heard Mm -hmm. it? And so the homily's principal purpose is to take that gospel or that epistle or or that prophetic reading uh, and to encourage, build up courage in the faithful uh, to see their lives through it and to live their lives by it. And by doing so, uh, to go out, right? The end of the Mass, right? Even the word Mass itself. Why, would, why do we call right. the Lord's Supper the Mass? Mm-hmm. Because the ending dialogue, which is usually presided over by the deacon in Latin, is ite misa est, which is where we get misa or Mass. And it literally means go. Mm. It is sent. Yes. What is sent? The gospel and the living God that you've received mm-hmm. in Holy Communion is sent out into the world. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, that's the purpose of the homily, to gear them up. Uh, for that being sent out and sent out to do something.
0: It's kind of interesting that we're calling this uh, portion of the program every Friday. We're devoting it to apologetics. And I know that uh, Father Jeremiah, you, and Father Emmanuel hopefully will be joining us on Fridays. We're looking forward to that. But perhaps there's been a lot more interest in apologetics these days because uh, people have not, in previous generations, been serious about lifelong learning. It was almost as if uh, being confirmed was the end of your religious education, and now we just kind of go to Mass and, you know, avail ourselves of the sacraments. But there's so much more to it, and I think Vatican II certainly drew attention to that. So uh, do you think that the emergence of apologetics, it's important, and, I, you know, perhaps uh, this radio program is an opportunity for people to learn about their faith so that they better understand what their role is as a member of the body of Christ. Right.
1: We're all called to apologetics, Bill. Uh, it, is, it is what St. Paul says. Have a reason for the faith that you hold in you when you're asked about it. Mm-hmm. Right. This is the command of the Apostle Paul. And what is apologetics? It comes from the Greek word apologia which is not to say sorry for something, right? We think apology, uh, but it's not that in this sense. It is to give a reason for something. So if I was in the early church and I was going to write just what I did in the first half of the show, my testimony, Mm -hmm. right? It would be called an apologia. I'm giving a reason for why I am the way I am or why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's an apologia. And so apologetics is having the ability to give an answer for the hope that, mm. that lies within us. And mm. every Christian is called to this. I think part of the problem is, is that uh, while the Second Vatican Council highlighted this in some ways, uh, given the culture of the late 60s and 70s, uh, and given everything that went with that culture, catechetics in our churches didn't follow through. Mm. Uh, and we stopped teaching the faith, by and large, in a very didactic and critical way, And we move to sort of this general fluffiness that the 60s and the 70s uh, represented. And so I often quip you know, in in sort of a sarcastic way that uh, young people are coming out of our catechetical programs, and all they've learned is this phrase, Jesus loves me, but they don't know who Jesus is, they don't know what love is, and they don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. empty and it's hollow. Mm -hmm. And then when they're put to it, when they're put to it by the teeth of life, which indiscriminately bite, when they're put to it by our Protestant brothers and sisters who challenge why they believe what they believe, uh, when they're put to it uh, by the secular world who's saying there is no God and you are living a life in vain, they don't have mm. the answer to the, or the reason for the hope that mm. they have within them. Mm. Uh, and that starts with those catechetical programs, catechetical programs in our churches, but also the 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 core life of the domestic church. What are we teaching in our homes? Yes. What are we teaching in our religious education programs? What are we preaching from the pulpit? Uh, and it, it, is it is it is it authentic and dynamic uh, faith uh, or is it just this light sort of fluff which which sort
0: of rides on the air like a piece of cotton? what I'm seeing is giving me a lot of hope as we see the emergence of uh, more emphasis on apologetics, but yes. also what is happening at the local parish level, that things are beginning to turn around from the perspective of a greater emphasis on lifelong learning, a greater emphasis on knowing something about the faith and not just that. Now, maybe that's not everywhere, Father, and certainly— that would be our hope, hope and prayer, that in the future our Catholic parishes would be uh, well-equipped uh, to do this work so that we have Catholic people who are well-informed but truly growing in their faith and growing in holiness.
1: And I think people want it. So at my parish, for example, which I, which I uh, took the helm of a year and a half ago, uh, we did a parish visioning survey, which I mentioned earlier, and one of the biggest things that came out in in the open comments of this survey uh, where they want more adult religious education. And, and you and I know when we worked uh, together at Holy Name of Jesus in India Atlantic, uh, those of you that don't know, uh, Bill has a wonderful Bible study program that's been going on for years at Holy Name of Jesus. And uh, he's got so many devotees to that, people that want to dive into the scriptures and learn. And uh, I remember running my own uh, series is there. You know, we'd have 400 people there on a Wednesday night. It's a blessing. Uh, hungering, yeah. for, hungering for uh, a deeper understanding of their Catholic faith. So I think it's coming back because I don't think people are satisfied
0: with empty calories. No, I don't think so either. You're listening to Treasures of Faith, and this is Apologetics Friday, and uh, Father Jeremiah is here with me in the studio. And Father, we got a couple of questions from our email bag since this is Apologetics Friday. So here's a a couple—I mean, you already addressed uh, this first question uh, very briefly, but— Uh, Many of our Protestant brothers and sisters claim that the Emperor Constantine founded the Catholic Church in 313 AD. You know, what's probably the best way to address that claim?
1: Well, I would say just the evidence. Now, people oftentimes make claims without investigating the evidence. So uh, what I did, for example, was investigate the evidence. And so we have extant documentation of what Christians believed. Uh, mainline Christians believed from the very beginning, through today, it's all written down. And so, if, if I want to, if I take the claim, uh, the real church went underground with Constantine. Okay, if I, if I take that as a premise, I can look at Christian writings and see that there is no doctrinal difference in 200 A.D. or 500 A.D. Mm-hmm. on either side of Constantine. Mm. So, what things did change a little bit was the ability to be able to write and to explore more because Constantine legalized Christianity. No longer were we having to celebrate Mass in the catacombs uh, on Sundays, uh, nor did we have to fear losing our lives every time we turned the corner because of the persecutions. And so uh, the Church, in a sense, flourished in a new way, and some of her liturgies took on some aspects of court ritual and all these sorts of things. But in terms of the faith of the Church and her lived experience, uh, we have ample documentation ample documentation from either end of Constantine. uh, And there is one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church on both sides with the same faith. Mm. And so I would say to somebody who wanted to seriously posit that idea that Christianity went underground in 312 and only resurfaced again in some phase of the Protestant Reformation, uh, I would say the burden of proof is on them. Because I've I've got volumes upon volumes upon volumes of the writing of Christians on either side of that date, uh, and they're all saying the same thing. And that's the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith.
0: I remember when I was, as an evangelical pastor, I was really looking into the claims of the Catholic faith again. Having left the faith and contemplating returning, I remember sitting with a Calvary Chapel pastor one day at lunch, and I began to talk to him, and I began to challenge him a little bit about uh, Christian history. And I can remember his comment I really don't care about history prior to the 16th century. And that just had such an impact on me because, as I think John Henry Newman says, to be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant. And uh, so, you know, a lot of these things are unknown, not only to our Protestant brothers and sisters, but also to our own Catholic people, Father. You know, you you mentioned something about uh, how— Uh, the church was legalized in a sense, and it, it, it brought to mind that the church has always experienced opposition. I know the Apostle Paul talked about it in the book of Acts. He warned about the external opposition, but at the same time, he warned about internal opposition. It's kind of interesting how that opposition ebbs and flows, whether it be external or what arises internally in the church. This is like a pattern of history, is it not?
1: It sure is. And and the church always, and that's one of the beautiful aspects of the church, though, uh, that the church uh, exists. And the church exists with the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ as a crystal clear mirror, imaging the world or the human person back to Mm -hmm. themselves as they are, Mm. not as they claim to be. And so when the purity of the gospel, when the justice of the gospel, when uh, the righteousness of the gospel shows the world that it is erring, shows the world that it is missing the mark. The world either has the choice to clean itself up and live by these virtues or to fight against those virtues because they're choosing vice. Uh, and whether by world, whether whether it's a civil power, whether it's an empire, uh, or whether it's a worldly person, the gospel shows them just as they are. Mm. And that in and of itself, every moment is an invitation to grace. Mm. And what do I do with that? When I see myself uh, to use the words of Genesis naked and poor, or to use the word of that praise and worship song that plays off that naked and poor, wretched and blind. Mm-hmm. I have a choice to kick against the goad, to stand on my own self-righteousness, uh, to claim my own power, or I have the choice to see that yes, I am broken. Yes, there is injustice in me. Uh, yes, I have went down wrong paths and that pierced hand is extending itself to me and say, will you come and follow? Mm. So I think there, there are particularities to every persecution, internal and external, but I think it comes down to that one thing, that the gospel reflects our truest reality to ourselves. That is an invitation of grace. And what do we do with that?
0: You know, Father, we call this program Treasures of Faith, where we are uh, hoping to showcase the truth, beauty, and goodness of our Catholic faith. And some of these concepts... If only the majority of our Catholic people would would embrace some of these concepts, they would see that to live Catholic is to live a truly exciting life. There's something exciting about being a Christian and about understanding the faith and understanding this wonderful church that we've been called to participate and be a member of. You know, just to kind of switch gears a little bit from our email bag this morning, We got a question from Eric in Melbourne, and he asked this, Father, As Catholics, we are consistently called to be mindful of and give to the poorest among us. What does the Church really teach, not only on the human dignity of the poor, but how does it pertain to our personal responsibility? Like our personal responsibility or engendering personal responsibility among the poor? I think our personal responsibility, what what are we responsible for when we look out at uh, the poor, the oppression, sometimes what, you know, governments do to people uh, and how much responsibility do we really have to those who are in need?
1: Oh, a grave responsibility, right? The church speaks, uh, especially in the past two or 300 years of the preferential option for the poor. Uh, The poor challenge us, right? So Mm. if, if we were to go back and look, for example, at the Augusti- or rather the, uh, Aristotelian, Aristotle's definition of love and the Nicomachean ethics, uh, if we go back to Thomas Aquinas and his definition mm. of love in the Summa Theologiae and other sources, uh, Augustine's definition of love, uh, which really formed the Christian tradition, it has nothing to do with St. Valentine's Day or Hallmark cards. Mm. Uh, the definition of love is quite simply this. To will the good of the other for the other's own sake without expectation of mm. return and not counting the cost. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of our personal responsibility, the poor challenge us to love.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, do I will their greatest good? Do I work on behalf of their greatest good? Do I contribute to their greatest good, knowing that they can't contribute anything to me in return mm. and not seeking it, not even seeking the good feeling, right? Some people give to charity because it makes them feel good. Right? No, that's imperfect love. That's right. Yeah. I give because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this is a child of God created in his image and likeness that for whatever reason has fallen on hard times. And I will his good. I Mm. will him to reach the destiny that God Mm. has created for him. And so Mm -hmm. I work on behalf of that good. I don't look for anything in return and I don't count the cost. I'm not counting the pennies I'm putting in the poor box or anything like that. At the same time to address perhaps another interpretation of that question, uh, you know, by means of justice, uh we look to see not only how to provide the material needs uh, the immediate material needs but how can we elevate the situation of the person right so i'm not just giving handouts per se mm-hmm. but how can i how can i help this person to to grow and to eventually come to help themselves if it's possible right so so you give a guy an ear of corn he has an ear of corn for the day you teach right. a guy how to plant corn He has crops for the rest of his life, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so it's that that when we're ministering with the poor, it's that twofold thing: giving without counting the cost for their own good. But what gifts can we give to them in order to help them uh, rise up themselves?
0: You know, Jesus said, "The poor you'll always have with you," and I think it's just uh, such a great point that they they challenge us. Mm -hmm. You know, to choose to sacrifice. You know, to genuinely love another person, and and I think you're correct about our complete misunderstanding of the word love in our current society. You know, Father, some have suggested, and I believe this is true, that the Catholic Church does more for the poor around the world than any single uh, institution or government or what have you. We do so much, and yet this is not often celebrated by the secular world. That's exactly
1: right. You know, in the secular world, we'd have all kinds of things like, you know, make us pay more taxes, you know, sell all the goods of the church and give it to the world. I remember when I was living in Rome and and I was going over to the uh, Vatican museums uh, to pray one day uh, because I could get in before everybody else and I'd pray morning prayer sometimes in the Sistine Chapel. And I was standing next to this guy and I was with another priest from Italy and and this guy's going on and on. He saw we were priests. He's going on and on about how the church has all these riches. Why don't you just Mm -hmm. sell it? You say you're for the poor. And this little Italian priest looked at him and he said, where else in the world can the richest man alive and the poorest man alive stare and contemplate a Caravaggio painting? Mm. Where else in mm. the world can a man's soul be, fi- be filled by Palestrina and Mozart without having to pay for a concert hall, mm. right? That these things that are beautiful, that are called for in the worship of God, that even St. Francis, the apostle of the poor, right. uh, when he spoke to his friars, he said, give the best to divine worship in the building mm. of churches. Mm. Because there's something of beauty even more than food that fills the soul and elevates the soul. Uh, and, and so, yeah, we are the biggest uh, charitable organization in the world. We provide more than any of these canards uh, who are calling us to provide more. Right. Uh, and we do so more sustainably and more efficiently. But at the same time, we're not just filling bellies. Uh, we're feeding souls. And some of those quote-unquote riches of the church are these beautiful treasures uh, that— that are the wondrous works of art of the Western civilization, that the poorest man alive and the richest man alive can come together and contemplate.
0: It's uh, amazing that when, again, I was contemplating returning to the church, having been a pastor of a couple of churches, we supported a number of missionaries on the mission field. And it was kind of interesting that as we supported these individuals, whenever there was any kind of political unrest or any potential violence that was going to be perpetrated on the people. These mission organizations would yank their people out of those particular places. And what I discovered is the only missionaries that remained behind to minister to the poor, to minister to the oppressed, to minister to those who were the victims of violence, were the Catholics. Now, probably because, you know, they didn't have families, and I get it. But that was such a witness to me that they remained And they did attempt to meet not only the physical needs of the people, but also to feed them spiritually, just as Jesus did.
1: That's exactly right. And in fact, my first formation advisor in the seminary, she's a a dear Holy Cross sister by the name of Sister Maureen. And uh, she was involved in the political unrest uh, in Lebanon many years ago. And when everybody else was pulling out, uh, she and her order stayed behind. Uh, You know, her car was bombed several times, but she would not leave. Uh, because she knew she needed to love those people in that situation, mm. even if it meant the giving of her own life. Mm. Uh, and so she she was in solidarity with them and brought them through that traumatic moment. Uh, and that's the courage that can come by living a truly authentic life in the mm. gospel, mm. by being willing to do even what Christ did, to lay down one's life for
0: one's friends. And I think what's so beautiful about it is the joy that these individuals have in answering that kind of call, that call to great sacrifice, how they embody so much joy, is a real witness uh, to a lost and dying world.
1: That's exactly right. You know, John Paul II was the ghostwriter for number 22 of Gaudium et Spes from the Second Vatican Council, and then Carol Wattivo wrote this, that man can only find himself, man can only truly become himself which is what joy is, right? Uh, Becoming who God created us to be and resting in that through the sincere gift of himself to Mm -hmm. another. So it it makes sense that joy is found by the authentic living out the self-sacrificial surrender of the gospel life. Mm. I will never find joy unless I give myself away in love.
0: Mm. What has been your greatest joy, Father, as you have served as a, as a, a parish priest? What, what has been the source of your greatest joy?
1: I think, of course, I love celebrating the Eucharist, making present the body and blood of our Lord uh, for, the, for the feeding of his people, uh, but I think the reconciliation of sinners, seeing mm. lives change, seeing people mm. at their lowest finally surrender to Christ, and then watching as those lives rebuild themselves in grace and joy.
0: Mm. So it really is as you uh, dispense the sacraments, as you uh, walk alongside those who are hurting because and it's uh, no mystery to you that people are struggling uh, in our current environment, especially young people, that the confusion that they're experiencing, mm-hmm. and of course, they're so distracted by so many things today. You know, I know that the church and, of course, a number of our parishes are trying to address the needs of the young, the needs of our adolescents and our young adults. But that's a real challenge today. And you being a fairly young priest, you have a real opportunity to kind of connect with those younger generations and hopefully encourage them uh, to greater faith.
1: That's exactly what we hope to do. That's exactly what we hope to do.
0: Well, Father Jeremiah, it's been wonderful having you. I, I want to uh, just uh, offer a couple of program notes before we ask Father to give us a final blessing. Uh, those who perhaps have attempted to listen online or are or, or trying to listen online, presently our Treasures of Faith program is not streaming on the Internet, so you're not going to be able to listen online or view, via the TuneIn app uh, it's an engineering issue that we're addressing, and I think we'll have that solved uh, as soon as we can. Um, within the next week, we're going to have podcasts of all of our programs, and those will be available on www.divinemercyradio.com, and we. We really do appreciate your patience. We invite you to email us with your comments at info at wdmc920.org. We would love to hear from you. Uh, Let us know what you think about this program, uh, Treasures of Faith. We're going to be joining you every Monday through Friday at this hour, 11 a.m. to 12 noon. And again, this is called Treasures of Faith, and we are going to... Uh, Focus on the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of our faith. Also, uh, yesterday's um, interview with Monsignor Tubes, uh, we call that Vocation Station. That's already on our website, so if you'd like to listen to that, uh, you can go to our website and hear that podcast. Well, Father Jeremiah, it's been a, a true blessing to be with you this day. And we certainly hope the best for your continuing ministry at St. Joseph's in Palm Bay. And hopefully our listeners will continue to pray for you and for all of our priests. And so we ask you to leave us with a blessing as we sign off today.
1: For sure. And good to be here with you guys, too. The Lord be with you. And
0: with your spirit.
1: May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
0: Amen. God bless, and we'll see you next week.